Welcome to the Brass Spittoon, the podcast of the Front Porch Republic. We'll chew on issues timeless and timely with a focus on place, limits, and liberty. I'm your host, John Murdoch. globe-trotting Wall Street banker who is personally agnostic on matters of faith may seem an odd choice to keynote a front porch for public conference at Grove City College, but today the travels of Chris Arnade take him far from the five-star hotels he once frequented. A photographer and writer, one regularly featured in The Atlantic and The Guardian, Arnade is what he calls a front-row kid who sympathetically chronicles back-row America. Pick things up as FPR website editor Jeff Bilbro introduces Chris and his work. But when we were thinking about this theme of after virtual and the kinds of postures that might be required to uh, move move forward uh, after a time of during a time of polarization. Chris came to mind as somebody who really um, would be good to, good to speak into that. Um, and I think in part what I really appreciate about his writing is that uh, he embodies this kind of posture of listening to other people, particularly people who often aren't listened to. You know, after the 2016 election, there was a really popular genre where some reporter would uh, parachute into some diner and interview somebody and then write a story for the uh, East Coast or West Coast um, uh, readership and explain the Trump voter phenomenon or something, right? And I think when you read Chris's uh, essays or book and you look at his photographs, you see somebody who is trying to actually listen to people rather than come up with some examples that you can fit into your predetermined narrative. Um, so it's this kind of posture of uh, humble and attentive listening that we maybe perhaps most need to learn if we're going to recover some of these lost goods and think about really difficult um, tensions. So I'm grateful that he's here. I, I look forward. He's going to speak. Then he's going to take some questions. So I hope you uh, ask him all the hard ones. This is going to be very informal. I'm not a professor like all these other people here. Um, I apologize. My wife insists I apologize about my appearance. She says I look like a Mormon missionary who discovered drink. <laughs> um, but um, I want to start off with something entirely unrelated to my talk, but kind of related to my talk. Let's see if it works. I'm going to try some high technology here. And speaking of Twitter, I'm going to show you a tweet. This has very little to do with my talk, but I just like it. So. And I think it fits some of the things we've been talking, I've been hearing about today. So I don't know if you guys have seen this, but here we go. Now, I said I was happy your daughter's in school. I'm, I'm glad your son in med school school. He, he said, I know, but 134 is my prayer time. He pulls the truck over. I'm mad because I'm late for my meeting. He goes to the back of the truck, pops open the truck, and takes out his prayer mat. Rolls out his prayer mat on the sidewalk of New York. I got an attitude, because I got a meeting I got to go to. I got some important people I got to see. I got some business I got to take care of. And God arrested me in that truck and said, if that Muslim man can pray in the street 
what you gonna do for what I did for you. I don't know where y'all are, but I ain't gonna let no Muslim out pray me. Every time I think of the goodness of Jesus at all. Um, so um, I thought about that because um, I do this new thing where I walk around the world. I just go to cities and I walk. And I had just been in Istanbul. And I, I've heard, I mean, this is a little bit deviant, this is a divergent from my talk, my plain talk, but um, I've been hearing a lot about a lack of faith, a, a, a problem with faith. There's a, there's a lack of faith in the US. <laughs> there's a lack of faith in elites among the US. And what that shows is there's a lack of faith amongst you know, there's not a lack of faith amongst black America, working class black America. There's certainly not a lack of faith amongst Muslims in Istanbul. I saw that same scene that he said performed all the time in Istanbul. The call to prayer woke me up at 4.15. I was in a bar in Istanbul, and it's, it, it was a hip bar, kind of place you'd find in Brooklyn, Istanbul style, and they had music on, and the minute the call to prayer came on, they turned off the music. Now, could you ever imagine a hip bar in the United States kind of <laughs> like accepting faith as something central to a culture? So central that they have to respect it enough to listen to the call to prayer. So I think I would like to just add before I speak that I think a lot of what's been talking about here is a problem that is kind of focused on the Western United States, Western, Western European countries in the United States. These things we've talked about, lack of community, they exist in Vietnam. They exist in um, Istanbul. And so it's very much a Western problem, um, a, West, a Western elitist problem. Um, one of the things I like about talking here is I usually have to spend 30 minutes trying to explain what you already know, that physical community is central to who we are. You know that. And that's something when I usually talk to people, when I come to colleges especially, you recognize that there's no amount of talking I'm going to do to convince people of that. Because their, their worldview is so narrow. They're so quantitative. They're so focused on the liberalism project and the goodness of what they're doing that they can't possibly understand they're missing something. They can't possibly understand they got something wrong. And it's not, a, it's not an evil thing. They actually really believe that the modern world they're building, the one I used to inhabit as a banker, the one of higher GDP, higher things, um, complete emancipation of the individual from any obligations to anything other than what they want to be, is the right path of history. They really believe that. And no amount of convincing them that in the process they've destroyed communities, they've destroyed families, and they've destroyed faith is going to change their mind. Because what you're doing is you're questioning their moral project. And they really do believe that. This isn't some, you know, I, I've heard some cynicism here on the, on the stage here. They're not coming at this from a cynical angle. They're not coming at this because they're bad people. They're coming at this because they really believe that's the way the world is. That they're on the right side of history, and the right side of history means bringing 
higher GDP, more profits, and bringing what I would call the sense of emancipation of the individual to be whoever they want to be to the rest of the world. So I had this really weird situation where, and I wrote this in a recent piece, I was in, um, before I was in Istanbul, I was in Vietnam. Vietnam is, I don't want, the average um, you know, per capita income is like $4,000 a year. Um, United States, it's $80,000. Um, to spend a month in, in Hanoi, walking through working class neighborhoods, hanging out in the bars, hanging out in the, in the temples, just being a normal person and seeing people happy content, living, uh, I think there was a woman here who said earlier, she said, I forget her name, she said, um, worried, worried about living, not worried about death. That's what, that's, what, that's what people in Vietnam are. And to then go over there and spend six weeks there, fly home, get into JFK, go to Port Authority, and just see hell. I mean, Look, a lot, of the, a lot of the people, I lived in New York City for 20 years, a lot of the stories you hear about New York City are wrong. New York City has a lot going on. It's not, it's not a violent hellhole. There's a lot of good things going on there. But there are a lot of sad people in New York City. There are a lot of broken people in New York City. And a, a society as wealthy as ours should not accept that. And yet we do. There's no place to sit in Penn, Penn Station. There's no place to sit in Penn Station. The reason there's no place to sit in Penn Station is because they're worried about the homeless people. In Istanbul, I did not see a homeless person. You know why I didn't see a homeless person? Even though they're one-fifth they're one our wealth? Because the mosques take care of them. Because the family takes care of them. Because, these, because people, because there's just not as much mental illness there. And at its core, again, going back to what you guys already know, it's because they understand what I call, we're the only country that does not believe in what I call transcendent values, not or non-credential forms of meaning. So I'm not usually. I, I want to go. I'm not a. Um, I'm not the best spokesman for your project because <laughs> I'm everything. I, I travel the world. I got out of my hometown as quick as I could. I'm probably an atheist agnostic. Um, so. I didn't necessarily want to come to the conclusions you have, but, but also I'm a scientist. I have a PhD in physics. And so about 12 years ago, 15 years ago, I, um, I started thinking something was wrong with the things we were doing, the liberal project, if you want to call it, the kind of globalist liberal project. I was a banker flying all over the world. Um, and. I was selling the IMF projects. I was doing all the things that, you know, <laughs> just open up your markets, reform your labor markets, get rid of your um, social security, You'll be, you know, the, the bond market will reward you. Um, living a very privileged life, and I still live a privileged life now, and I was, you know, of that view that I, would, I, I was somebody, I wasn't a Richard Dawkins fan, but, you know, I didn't see him as a clown. Um, um, but on my, on my trips, I started thinking something was wrong. Like, we were missing something. And um, I remember once sitting in traffic jam in, in, in 
in Rio de Janeiro, not Rio de Janeiro, Sao Paulo. And if you're, if you're a businessman flying around the world selling the, you know, the banker, you, um, you end up having the same view of every city. It's five-star hotels. It's dinners with people who are, you know, agree with you, but they, you know, in, in, a different, in a different accent. They're all committed to the same globalist project of bringing capitalism and individual rights to the world. But I remember sitting um, one night. Um, it was after an awful financial problem. You know, the, the world was blowing up. The financial markets were blowing up. And I had spent you know, four days in the office, between the office and the hotel. And I remember um, running to the cab, getting a cab, and heading to the airport and being stuck in traffic. And it was an awful traffic jam. I mean, nobody has traffic jams like the Brazilians. Um, it was like two hours in the back of a, uh, you know, a luxury limo type thing. And I just remember looking out into the favela, which lined the, lined the highway to the, the airport. And just looking at and started looking at people's lives. You could walk, it was like a, the, way the, the way it was lit, the favelas were self-lit. It was like watching a stage play of pe normal people living. You know, the, I remember seeing a, a little nightclub where there was a single light hanging down, people playing cards on the table, laughing, having fun. And I'm like, we're missing something. We're missing people. And it's in all my business trips. I've never once set foot into a favela. And yet, favelas make up a large percentage of the Brazilian population. In all my trips, as a business trips to um, in Moscow, I never once went outside of a certain contained neighborhood. It was unsafe, they said. Favelas are unsafe. Um, so I started having these kind of images that we were missing something. You know, we were, we were missing the people we claimed to be advocating for. You know, the people we claimed to be helping. I didn't talk to anybody from the favela over my like three years of doing business in Brazil. So around the financial crisis, um, I used to do these long walks. I still do these long walks now, but I did these long walks that were very much focused on completing a goal. I would go for 20 mile walks. I walked the entire subway system of New York above ground. I just had to do it you know, like that. But along my walks, I started talking to people, started, started listening to them. And somewhere around 2007, 2008, when the financial crisis was happening, when I was kind of having a, you know, I guess a midlife crisis, as well as a crisis of um, um, confidence um, uh, and somewhat shame, I, um, I started changing my walks. They, they stopped having a goal other than just talk to people. And I stopped listening to people who said neighborhoods are unsafe. So I started going into neighborhoods that were unsafe. And I went to Hunts Point. Hunts Point is the most dangerous neighborhood in the United States. By, 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 the, by statistics, Hunts Point is the most dangerous neighborhood in, the United States, in, in New York City. Um, uh, you know, it's 99.9% .9 Latino and black, and not 99.9% .9 Latino and black. Um, so I stood out. But I just kept talking to people and kept going back and talking to people. And I ended up spending basically three years um, uh, becoming friends with a group of homeless addicts in Hunts Point and just listening to them. Um, and I did this because at one level, as a, uh, as a person, I enjoyed being with them more than I enjoyed being with my baker friends. But as a scientist, I was learning. 
I was learning that, you know, everything that we believed, I call them the front row, you call them the professional managerial class, call them what you will, the elites. Um, everything we believed was wrong. <laughs> I mean, you know, um, 15 minutes away, uh, 20, 25 minutes actually away from Wall Street was a neighborhood where people were, you know, living under bridges, injecting heroin, selling themselves for sex. And I walked into that neighborhood expecting to find certain things. I expected, I, know, I expected first and foremost um, that um, I would find people who didn't believe in faith, who didn't believe in God, who had, you know, were certainly, certainly I said my kind of quantitative brain, if there's anybody who understands there's no God, it's got to be these people who have nothing. Um, and yet, <laughs> I found a population that was imbued with faith and a level that I had never seen before. It wasn't um, necessarily theologically sound religion, um, you know, theologically sound faith. And that's what I've kind of learned over this project is there's, there's a hierarchy of theology. <laughs> um, it, wasn't, it wasn't necessarily approved religion, but it was faith. It was faith. And it was faith in a way that was informed their worldview. It was faith that um, gave them hope. It was faith that was informed by their experiences. And their experiences were everybody dies. They know that because, you know, one bag bad, one bad bag, you're dead. You're very close to death. And when you're very close to death, it's not an atheist in the foxhole thing. It's a recognition that, you know, you have to live. Um, it's a recognition that we humans are very small. That, you know, that you can't know everything. And that to me is at the, it was what, at the core what faith is about. And the difference between a secular front row type and a person like you saw on the screen is a humility, a recognition that we can't solve it all. Everybody in my friends, all my friends in my banking community, most people in academics, you know, the secular worldview, really do think you can solve it. Just give me enough time, give me enough books, give me enough computer power, I can solve that. That basically to me is what secularism is. The idea that man can, can man is greater than anything else. That man can, can solve it all. That the material world is really what matters most. And we control the material world, so therefore we're the greatest. The act friends I had understood that that's not the case. <laughs> so I used to say that atheism was an intellectual luxury. But I think differently, I think atheism is, a, is basically, it's kind, of, it's kind of sad in the sense that if you're, an, if you're an atheist like Richard Dawkins is, you're living a, living a very narrow life where you've cut yourself off from the experiences that, that show you that faith is real, that God is real. You're removed from the evidence for God, from your luxury, from your, from, from your um, privilege. And so in that sense, 
that, that kind of mind frame of being removed from reality or being removed from the evidence of so much is what our kind of political class gets so wrong. Um, it's what they do all the time. And so that was my first kind of like big insight was, I mean, it took a lot to, <laughs> for someone who, I, you know, I'm the, I'm, the ki- I'm the famous kid who, kid who famously, I was raised in a small Catholic community. My dad was Jewish, but even then, we were, we were, the, we were the only Jewish family, um, ethnically Jewish, not religiously Jewish. We were the only family in town that wasn't Catholic, so my dad said, you're Catholic. <laughs> so we went to Catholic school, and um, I, you know, I, I didn't like to be a server boy. I didn't like it. Um, it was an obligation on my time that I didn't like. And we had a, we had a mean new priest who came in. He, he got shipped from New York down to us, out to farm. And he insisted on returning the, the ringing of the bells. And I didn't know when to ring the bells as an altar boy. So he, I had long hair then, like I have now. And um, he said um, to me, he said, you know, you need to cut your hair. And I just shot back, well, you know, Jesus Christ had long hair. <laughs> <laughs> And he, he, he kicked me out, and I went home. I said to my mom, do I have to go back? She says, no. And I was happy. I was happy. Um, you know, so I, I was a kid who, if you read my book, I got into arguments with a local preacher guy because he called me an atheist. And you know, I said, you know, I did all that thing, the well-actualing of the Bible. You know, where, where did Cain and Abel find their wives? You know, things like that. <laughs> you know, so, so for me to admit that faith was powerful took a lot. It was something I didn't want to see. But I saw it because I was going out and talking to people. And I'm a scientist first and foremost. If I see something that's different from what I believe, I'm going to change my mind. Um, so I also learned about a lot in Hunts Point. I learned about, you know, but primarily for this lecture, I learned about faith. But I also learned about resilience of people. I learned about the vast injustices of our system. <laughs> I learned how, how to touch our elites are with the people they claim to help, came to ad, claim to advocate for. But so I also, as a scientist, I wanted to know if what I'd learned in Hunts Point was unique to Hunts Point or in mathematical terms, was it translationally invariant? So I got in my van and um, I drove 450,000 miles around the country, um, kind of doing the same thing. I'd go to places where people told me not to go. I remember like, um, I remember, um, uh, I remember, you know, like the few days when I would stay in a hotel that was fancy enough to have someone like at the, at the front. Um, I would ask him like, um, he, he, he said something, I said, where, where should I go in town? And he's like, he'd give me a list and then I'd cross them out because I don't, you know, any place someone tells you to go, I don't want to go. Um, and then I'd ask him, like, where do you buy drugs? And he's like, you know, look at me strange. I go, no, 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 I just think that. Um, so I go to the places people told me not to go. Um, and I talk to people. I just hang out, famously McDonald's, if you read my book. Um, and I'd usually hang out long enough till I learned something that made me um, question what I had learned before. And I want to get to the second um, big insight. The first one I call faith. Uh, these are things I call transcendent values or non-credential forms of meaning. There are things that give you a sense of play, meaning that don't require a college degree, okay? They don't require you, you're all, you're all born with them. Everybody's born with them. So they're non-elitist, we all have them. We're gifted them at birth. The first is faith. You can just walk into a church, as long as you say, I believe, you're accepted. Um, 
just go back to that a little bit. I just say that I used to always say that's one of the other re reasons I came to embrace faith was in Hunts Point, one of the few places that works are churches. You have all these nonprofits. They're not there. They're, they close shop. The kids go home. The kids are scared to be in the neighborhood. The churches are open. I mean, well, on Wednesday nights and Sundays. I always say that if a homeless person, a homeless person, the people I dealt with, homeless addicts, if they walked on to a church, you know what happens? They're embraced. They're, they, they try to show them, try to try to try to help them. If they walk into McDonald's, they're allowed to sit there at the table and drink. If they walk onto a college campus, they're kicked off, man. They're called. The police will call them. <laughs> the first you, you go to this, the most woke colleges. If a, if a homeless person walks on campus, they're going to be ejected, just like that. Mm. So they're, they're very welcoming places. Again, non-credential forms of meaning. You don't need credentials to walk into a church. You don't need credentials. The second one I call place. It's very simple. And this was, this was one that was hard for me to change because it was very, very ingrained to me, a front row educated person who bought into the liberal project. You just move all the time. And if you don't move all the time, you're a loser. I mean, look, moving's great. I, I literally fly around the world. Um, and I would never tell somebody not to move. But it's just some, such a fundamental idea that place has no value that I remember that this is where I started, I started asking people, you know, I just sit in McDonald's asking questions. I remember asking this young woman from Cairo I don't know if you know where Cairo, Illinois is. It's one of the most unique places in the world. It's at the, at the intersection, I believe, of Ohio, Mississippi. Is that possible? Um, um, uh, now it's, uh, it's like 60% um, black. Um, it's actually pronounced um, Cairo, as they, as they say. It's called Cairo. Um, it's, it's about 85% black and very, very poor. And I remember I was in a housing project there talking to someone. Whatever, and I just asked her, I said, where are you from? I said, I said um, are you from here? She goes, no. I said, where are you from? She goes, oh, a few miles north. <laughs> um, I said, uh, in my notes, she's from here. Um, but that, that started happening all the time to the point where I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> you know, I remember asking another guy in a McDonald's in a place um, off of Route 40, I think, um, um, where he was from. He had just told me, he said, I've been here, I said, he just told me this whole story that basically put, as a detective, put him in this town his entire life. He was like 75, I said, right, so, so you were born and raised here? He goes, no, I was born and raised down by the fairgrounds. <laughs> That's 15 miles away. <laughs> so my, my scientific mind goes, place is important, and they think about it differently than I do. Um, but place is immensely important. Again, it's something that's gifted to you. Like, and it has value. Like, and yet we ask people to basically be rootless immigrants in their own country. If the, if the work changes, the, the, the biggest example is, is NAFTA. There's gonna be winners and losers, but that's okay. The winners will win more than the losers will lose. But the losers are gonna have to move. They're gonna have to give up their identity. That's not just a, you know, that's not just a value you can put on a spreadsheet. I identify as being a person from Portsmouth. That's who you are, that's your meaning. And yet, you can just uproot that. <laughs> so place was the second one, is a non-credential form of meaning. That, that we just, we, we, we front row types, and I include myself in that, just don't value. Because we can't measure it. How can you measure faith? How do you measure place? But, um, 
So the third is um, the third is family and nation. Those are the those are the four: faith, place, nation, and then there's race. That's a that's a touchy one, but they're all play, they're all things that give you a sense of a sense of meaning, and they cost nothing. <laughs> you know, you're you're gifted them at birth, and we've taken those and replaced those. We've plowed those over. If you're faithful, you consider it as backwards. If you if you stay in the same place, you're considered you know <laughs> provincial, and family is another one that we've done everything we can to diminish the value of. Um, I remember uh, I was in East LA um, at a McDonald's in East LA, and um, I was. Um, I, I used to, I, when I'm on the road, I just spend my nights at McDonald's typing up my notes or just, you know, doing whatever or, or, or fighting with people on Twitter. And um, um, there was this young woman, Mexican-American woman, sitting a few tables over. And um, she, um, she, she would, she, I knew exactly who she was because I'd seen her all over the United States. She came in with her computer, her Game Boy, and a bunch of other things, so she could use the Wi-Fi. She was too poor to have, her family didn't have Wi-Fi, so she'd sit there and do her homework or play her Game Boy and pl plug, in, um, plug in the um, appliances. And um, she kind of started seeing me every night. She asked me where I was from. I said, from New York City at the time. She said, well, wow, I'd love to go to New York City. I said, well, you know, there's a lot of good schools in New York. You can go. And she goes, well, and I asked her, like, where, where are you studying? She's like, East, East LA Community College. And I'm like, that's a good school. And, she, and I said, you know, you can always go to New York. You know, there's lots of good schools. She goes, well, I can't. I said, why? She goes, well, you know, I'm my mom's translator. You know, front row me is like, oh, God, that's an awful thing. She can't go get the education she wants. But I think she's making the right decision. She's there for her mother. She's not going to leave her mother. You know, like, like, a lot of, like, like a lot of recent immigrants, the oldest child is the one who, who, who speaks, who's bilingual, can translate. So that's what she does. So she can't leave her mother, and she won't leave her mother. Other people might, you know, will, will tell you, to, to, to be successful in this world now, you have to break up your family. You know, move on. Um, and so one of the things about, um, one of the things I would like to say about being a scientist is you guys all know this already, but I uh, I want to I want to put it in a framework that I, under, that I understand, which is a scientific framework. Um, so you look at what we've done to the United States, and what we've done is we've taken all away people's forms of meaning. You know, they place, faith, family, nation are things that give people an address in what I call the meaning universe. They know who they are. They know that they have a community. They know that they have an identity. And most of all, they know they have connection to something that goes beyond them when they die. Let's look at what. So those kind of traditional forms of giving yourself an address in what I call the meaning universe, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm Joe from Portsmouth, and I, I have five kids, and my, my clan goes back, you know, three generations here, and I'm a, you know, a Baptist. 
Those places give him an identity that he, he, he can compare to other people throughout history and also throughout the country. So it's kind of an address. We have like, as a mathematician, you have like uh, a vector <laughs> in this space that says, this is who I am. And this gives me a place in the meaning universe. And I know when I die that, I, that my life had a, a purpose. Um, these, are not, these are not things that are solely of the here and now. Some of them are connected to the metaphysical. So it's a very good system we humans have built over you know, 40,000 years. These traditional ways of defining who you are. In the US now, we have this project going on to replace that, dismantle that. And replace it by two forms of meaning. One is career. That's basically, and they're very, that is how much money do you make? If there's anything that defines kind of the meaning, what gives meaning to the front row? What gives meaning to me as when I, when I, before I did this project? I was a banker. I was a, I, before that I was a particle physicist. Um, I had a career. I was going up, 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 and up, and up in kind of status. My resume was getting bigger and bigger. My income was getting bigger and bigger. Careerism. So when you meet somebody, you know, in the US, you just wonder, what, what, what do you do? What's your job? You're basically asking what your resume is. So the, so the kind of front row wants to replace the, what I call the traditional meaning address with, it's kind of an interesting definition of, of mean address. One of them is what's your job and what's your resume look like, your CV. Which, when you think about it, careerism as a form of meaning is non-transcendent. <laughs> it's entirely material, certainly not metaphysical, and it's extraordinarily elitist. By very definition, you're ranking people by how much, <laughs> how much they, how many books they've read, or how much money they have. It's 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 a hierarchy. It's a direct hierarchy. Place isn't that. Faith isn't necessarily that. They're more egalitarian. Family isn't necessarily that. Um, and then there's a second term. And this is the one that's kind of interesting to me. We, 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 we kind of define ourselves in the United States by two things. One is your career, and then the other is whatever you want it to be. You define you. And in mathematics terms, it's like this infinite dimensional matrix. Whatever color your parachute is, that's you. You can destroy all forms of anything else and define yourself as whoever you want to be. And that's, we celebrate the individual. Be, be free to be you. Emancipate yourself from anything else. You are the one. You can be whatever you want to be. It's a self-definition of who you are that is a community of one. <laughs> so are we surprised people are lonely? We've replaced this meaning, this address in the meaning universe that's Every one of those is a community. Every, every one of those is transcendent. Every one of those is metaphysical. Neither of the two things we tell people to find themselves by now has a community attached. Maybe your career. There's a community. You have, your, you have the people you go to school with. But the self-definition by, de is, 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 is by definition isolating. It's you. It's a community of one. It attaches you to nobody. 
And to, to go back to kind of the conversation of this whole convention, people will argue, when I say this, people argue, well, we got digital communities, you know, you, you can define yourself as somebody who does online gaming. The, the digital, and digital communities are strong. My, my daughter's an online gamer. She, would, she has a strong community. She has friends online, but it's just not the same. No one will ever convince me, and I think we've learned through COVID, that virtual communities are not the same as real physical communities. They just aren't. They're in a different category. So this, this idea that self-definition, you, you can, you can, with five billion people, you can find somebody else who self-identifies as you, and therefore you have a community now. <laughs> First of all, you can't necessarily, but second of all, they're just not as strong. And so this is what goes back, this is what I think about when I come in from these flights from places like Vietnam, where they have strong families, where they still have faith, where they still <laughs> believe in community. And I, I could talk all about the economic system which we have in the United States, which is, which is built on dismantling communities. Um, to come in into the to Port Authority and see people miserable. But they're free. They're free to be who they are. <laughs> they're flying their freak flag. Yay, you. <laughs> you know, and so <clears throat> it's just phenomenal what we're doing. We're literally destroying people's sense of self-worth in this project of supposed personal emancipation. And the response I get from people you know, who said, well, the old system was you know, exclusive. What about, what, about, what about minorities? What about gays? Yes, systems are exclusive. But my response to them is, nobody's happy in this system. <laughs> They're not happy either. <laughs> we're all, it's kind of like, you know, we're, we're all screwed now <laughs> to be unhappy because we have no communities. We're, 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 we're building this. And I, the thing I want to get at is this isn't just, meaning is everything. It's deep. It's not something you can teach somebody. It's, it's, it's kind of like a technology we raise kids to have. And we're raising them to have this, we're raising them to, 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 to be isolated. We're raising them to be lonely. <laughs> We're saying that in the man, man, name of you know, individual rights and emancipation, you, gotta be a per, you, have to be, you have to be an atom flying around with nobody. And that's left a lot of people really miserable because people need community. I mean, if, if, if COVID didn't teach us that people need community, then I don't know what will. Until next time, when the focus shifts to our health after virtual, thanks for pulling up a chair. Find your way home.